How to Play, Episode 33, Game of Thrones. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I provide a full explanation to help you learn and learn to teach another great game. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello everyone, thanks for listening. This is your host Ryan Sturm, and today we're going to talk about Game of Thrones. And this episode was recorded on December 17th, 2011. It feels so good to be back in the How to Play studios. It's Christmas time. I hope all of you listeners are getting excited and ready for a good holiday season. Today I'm very excited because I get to talk about Game of Thrones, the board game. Let me start this episode by saying that this game was sent to me upon my request from Fantasy Flight Games. It's a game I've been familiar with and enjoyed the first edition, and upon hearing about a second edition, contacted Fantasy Flight, and I very much appreciate them sending me this Game of Thrones second edition for me to try out and teach you how to play. I'll start with my traditional discussion of why I love this game. First and foremost, what drew me to this game and still really increases my enjoyment of it is that it lets me step into the setting and play the role of characters from my favorite book of the series of Song of Ice and Fire by George R.R. Martin. And for those of you that don't know, somehow, if you've been living in a cave, uh, this has been one of the more popular fantasy series over the last 10 years or so. And I'll talk a little bit more about the books and persuade you to go read them, if you haven't, in the footnotes section. So if you want more information on that, stay tuned. But you don't need to be familiar with the books. It will increase your enjoyment of the game if you've read the books. And if you haven't read the books, you're really missing out on some of the greatest fantasy books ever written. So go read read the books. And like I said, I'll get a bit more detail about that after this game explanation. Christian Peterson and Fantasy Flight did a really nice job in capturing the feeling that is prevalent throughout the books, and that is one of constant tension and backstabbing, as well as capturing the setting and characters in the book with with really nice art. So to be completely honest, that is the number one reason that I enjoy this game. But you may be thinking, okay, I don't really care about the books. I'm not going to read the books. I I don't really like to read fantasy novels. Will I still like this game? Yes. Yes, you will. If you want a tense, in-your-face, strategic conflict game with some really solid mechanics, critical decisions, a low degree of randomness, this is your game. Now, I am not usually into that sort of genre of game of direct conflict, you know, armies on a map sort of battling it out. That's usually not my forte. I I like a lot of train games, pick-up-and-deliver, economic games. But, you know, to quote the most interesting man in the world, I don't always play direct conflict games, but when I do, I play Game of Thrones. Among that genre, it's really a great game. It it doesn't go on too long. It's around two to four hours, somewhere in there. And due to the tough choices and low luck level, and of course the setting and characters that I love, this is a game that I really enjoy. And if you haven't played it, you're missing out on, on a really nice, strategic, interactive game. Alright, so who wouldn't like this game? 
Now, if you have people who don't like games in which they need to sort of take down an opponent uh, or they steer away from games with conflict, this really is not their game. You do have to really go after your opponents in order to win. You cannot just sit there. That is, in fact, the entire game is finding ways to take territory from your opponents. So if that does not sound appealing to you, then you may want to try something else. Also, if you have a problem with games that are unforgiving, then you need to know that this is a game where if you make a mistake early, it it can really cost you. I personally don't mind that in a game because I think it, it really rewards players for playing well and punishes players for making mistakes. But that being said, early on, you know, one or two of your players might have some pretty rough games where things don't go so well. If you have people who aren't really able to handle that, then you know, you just need to know that that's part of the game. You can theoretically eliminate someone in this game by taking out all of their pieces, but more likely what happens is players do get almost virtually eliminated, and it can happen pretty soon in that they lose a lot of their pieces, and not due to any roll of the dice or card flip, but more likely because of choices that they made. But I think you should know that going in. The the nice thing is, like I said, the game isn't forever long. Uh, Most games are done in under three hours. So hopefully, you know, people can take that as a learning experience and, and play better the next time. But if you really want a game where you and five of your friends can really just get your armies on a board and just go after each other, including with a, you know, a little bit of diplomacy and back and forth, take that to see who will claim the throne of Westeros and be the most powerful king of the hill then this is your game. You're going to love it. You're going to have a great time. This game was designed by Christian Peterson. It was originally released in the year 2003. Now, it's been out of print for a long time. In fact, I was going to do this episode a few years ago and then you know found out that the game really isn't available. So I waited excitedly for this new edition to come out, which has been released to a lot of anticipation. The game supports between three and six players, but to be honest, this is a game you really want to have the full six players for. If you don't have six, then you have to put these neutral armies on the board to, to shrink the board. And, you know, the game was really designed for six. And so if you don't think you're ever really going to have six players to play this game, you may be missing out on the full experience and, and you may just want to pass on it because it's really best with six. That's, that's really the full experience of the game. So some of you who are listening may have played the original Game of Thrones, and you may be wondering what they changed in the new edition. Well, luckily I can go through that quickly for you. Or those of you who are looking to get the new game may be just curious what they changed. It's much more than just a reprint. They did a pretty full graphical update, and they made some minor mechanical changes to the game. So it's not really the same game as it was eight years ago. And they did a really nice job because they sort of fixed all that issues uh, from when the first game came out. And they incorporated a lot of the best of what came in the first expansion for the game that was called Clash of Kings. The original game played to five and then Clash of Kings expanded it to six. And everybody really liked how that six player board works. So that's the standard game that's in the box is, is that six player game as I just talked about. The graphical redesign is very nice. You know, first of all, the thing that I would say is that the cover the cover art is beautiful. It's a big improvement from what I thought was not such a great Jon Snow on the original 
box, but the, the cover art has this beautiful landscape. You see King's Landing and the Baratheon army storming into the walls, trying to crash the walls, and the Lannisters defending it. It's just excellent. Along with, they sort of changed the board and made it not only prettier, but more functional. They added, you know, a victory point track that was certainly needed. They incorporated ports from the Clash of Kings expansion, which was really an essential addition to the game. They went from wood pieces to these this marbled plastic. You know, it's not minis, it's marbled plastic figures, which originally I was hesitant about, but it really fits the new look of the game so well that, that I, I enjoy the marbled plastic pieces. One of the best changes is they added screens to the game, which have some basic information on the back, but also, more importantly, a big part of the game is sorting through these little one-inch discs and deciding where to place them. And without that screen, the game was difficult to play as you had to sort of hide them in your hand and just physically it wasn't that great. I think some of the art even on the cards was changed. They sort of, I think, picked and chose from the two decks of, of character cards and used sort of the best ones. They changed some of the special orders. They added garrisons to protect your home. They added cards to make the wildling attack a little bit different every time. One thing I really wish they would have done would have been just one page about what's new in the second edition uh, because there are rules changes and I kind of assumed that there weren't when I took it out to play the game and you know if just all those were sort of outlined in a one-page format instead of having to dig through them and find what was different I would have appreciated that one last thing I, I do have to mention is that the first printing of this game had a, a board issue and it doesn't sit quite right due to a miscut and to Fantasy Flight's credit they are working on replacements they're going to replace those for free and send those out to you but just so you're aware that you may get a warped board if you purchase this game and may have to request a replacement with that minor issue being said, overall, this was a really good reworking of the game to make it just overall aesthetically a better looking and functionally better playing game. I'm, I'm really sad to tell those of you who already own the game that it's probably worth upgrading. It just based on some of these minor changes that they made, the ports are already on the board. Aesthetically, it looks nicer. There's a victory point track on the board. There's just a few extra components. If this is a game that you play a couple times a year, I would invest in the second edition. It is a very nice reworking of the original game. I really like what they did with it. Let's get to the complexity rating. Complexity rating. This game is a double black diamond. There are a lot of rules, but the main issue is what I sort of talked about earlier, is that it really takes a few plays to play well. It's difficult to know how to play without sort of seeing how the game actually plays out. And mistakes on the first turn or two can really sort of take you out of the game. So you have to be willing to really sort of invest in this game. So with all that being said, now let's get into the explanation. We'll start with our hook, get to the meat of the rules, some hamster with some basic strategy. At the end, I'll have a few footnotes and my take on the uh, Song of Ice and Fire books. So stay tuned for that. I always recommend having that game in front of you or access to the internet. You can go to howtoplaypodcast.com and click the link to see pictures of the components for the game to help you better your understanding. So let's do it. Let's head to Westeros, shall we? Let's get to the hook. Part 1. The Hook, what the game is about. Welcome to Game of Thrones. 
In this game, you are one of the six noble families on the continent of Westeros, seeking to expand your power to claim the Iron Throne. The king is dead. Which one of you will rise to be the master of Westeros and claim the Iron Throne? Will it be you, Baratheon? The yellow player? The golden stag? Baratheon is kind of like that, that whiny older brother who always is saying, But I deserve it! It's supposed to be mine! I'm supposed to be king! And he might be right, but nobody really likes that guy. So that's you, Yellow. You're, you're Mr. Whiny Pants. Lannister, the red player. Yes, you are evil. Yes, you, you lie, you lions, you lie, you cheat, you use your money, and you break all the rules including some rules that I, I cannot talk about on a family-friendly podcast, but needless to say, you are you are very naughty, you Lannisters. The Starks, the white players, you are the good guys. Everybody wants you to win because you're so honorable and always want to do what's right and just. And you will do it yourself because you're a man. You're from the North and you're tough and all that kind of stuff. The Greyjoys, the Black Player, the Krakens. You have been sitting on your island. You are pirates and you are bored. But now is the time to rise up because everybody's fighting and pirates love fighting. The Tyrells, the Roses, the Green Player. You are that character in the movie that nobody remembers their name. You are just there to provide land and armies and resources to whichever major character in the book wants them at the time, but no longer. The time for the Tyrells is now. Rise up, flowers, and fight with your petals. And finally, the Martells from the south, the snakes of the desert from Sunspear. Sure, you didn't do anything important in the first three books of the series, but now, now is your time. Snakes, attack! Which one of these six houses will prevail? It is up to you. These six families have declared war, and the first to assert their dominance by claiming seven castles will win the game. On each turn, all the players will simultaneously declare an order for each area where they control units by placing an ordered disc in that area. Then all players will reveal their orders simultaneously, and we will resolve the orders. The heart of the game is deciding which order to choose in which area. The most important of these five orders are the ones with the axe icon, which allow you to move your armies into adjacent territories to either claim an empty region or to attack a defended region. Some of the other orders allow you to defend regions, support adjacent battles, or generate some of the critical resources in the game, power tokens. Play will begin right away with all players placing discs in each region with which they control units. When all the players have finished placing their discs, all discs are placed face up. Then the main part of the turn involves the players resolving one of their march orders one at a time in turn order, until all players have completed all of their marches. Starting with the second turn, each turn begins with revealing three event cards that have a major effect on the game. Then we'll return to all players placing their order discs and resolving marches once again. We continue playing until one player has taken seven castles. Or in the rare case that no player achieves this by the end of ten turns, then at that point, the player with the most castles will win the game.
part two, the meat, how to play the game. So as I said, the heart of this game is taking these order tokens, which are like little one inch discs with your house logo on one side and one of five symbols on the other side. And the major decision making is taking these 15 discs that you have and deciding which order to do in which region. So the first most important thing we have to go over are what are the five different things that you can do in each area that you control units. The five different order tokens. Number one, the most important, the march. This is marked with an axe. When you place this in a region, that's going to allow you to move to one adjacent region. You can use it to move into an empty spot or to attack a spot with enemy units. You are allowed to split up the movement. If you had two units in that area, you could send one one way and one the other way. The only rule being you can only start one battle. So you cannot send them to two enemy occupied areas. Also by using the marches, since they're executed one at a time, it is possible to chain movement. What do I mean? Well, I could do a march in a southern region and move my troops north. Then on my following march, let's say I had a march token already in that northern territory, I could take my now larger force and move all the troops in that region north again. You also have boats and sea regions, and they could use marches, even though I suppose they're not marching, but uh, they, they would use marches to move into an adjacent sea region. But the important part about boats is they allow your troops to move further. Boats are essentially sort of like land bridges. If you have a footman unit on the coast, he can use a boat to travel to any region adjacent to the sea that that boat touches. And if you have boats in two adjacent sea regions, you can move a footman all the way down as far as that chain of boats can reach. And boats have unlimited capacity. So that's marching. You use it to move your troops or to attack regions. Order number two, defense. This is marked with a helmet. And it has a plus one or plus two on it. And that will give you a strength bonus. If you think that that area is going to be attacked, you should play one of these there because it's going to give you a bonus in combat. Order number three, support. This is marked by an iron fist. Troops with an iron fist cannot move, but what they can do is they can add the strength of the units in that territory to any battles that are adjacent to their territory, which can be very powerful. So if some of your troops attack and you have an adjacent support region, you basically get to use both of those armies. You can also support armies of other players in battle. You can either support the attacker or the defender. This is another important function of boats because seas may support battles in their adjacent land. Though for obvious reasons, troops on land cannot support naval battles. Hey guys, I'm swimming out there. I'm gonna, I'll punch the boat. I got it. I got it. Order number four, get power. This is the crown symbol. When you place that, this in a territory, you're not going to get to do anything except get one power token. Some areas on the map have crown symbols on them. And if you use your crown order in an area with a crown symbol, you'll get your normal one power token plus another token for the number of crown symbols in the area. So normally there might be one crown, so you would get two instead of one. Boats usually cannot use the get power order unless they're in these special port areas, which we'll talk more about later. And finally, order number five is the raid, marked with a torch symbol. Now this is probably the least used of the five orders, but can do some sneaky things. 
What does it do? The raid order lets you remove an opponent's order disk from an adjacent area. It can get rid of other raid tokens, but what you really want to do with it is to remove another player's support disk, or you can remove another player's get power disk, which gives you a bonus of one power and makes them lose a power when you do that. So with each region that you have, you'll have five choices of what to do there. March or move, defend, support adjacent battles, get power tokens, or raid, basically knock off an opponent's disc if you can. The trick being that you only have three of each of these, and a lot of times you'll want more than three, especially of the marches, and you'll have to decide, all right, where are the places that will really help me to march? So this game is all about taking your opponent's territory, and to do that, you have to fight them. So let's talk about how combat is resolved. And in my opinion, there's no better chord for a combat segue than E minor. E minor chord, please. Thank you. Combat. Though, though I think it needs to be tuned a little bit. Intern Skippy, will you tune this for me uh, before the next segue? You got it! Thanks, Skippy. So, you've marched your troops into an opponent's territory. Let's find out if you've won. There are about four numbers that we need to add together, and whoever has the highest strength will win the battle. It's just that simple. First, the value of your units. The two most common kinds of units are footmen and knights. And footmen have a strength of one, and knights have a value of two. Of course, you might also have a naval battle, and in that case, each boat has a strength of one. So you would just add up the strength of those units on both sides. Next, you would add the value of the order token. Whoever attacked adds their march order bonus that was on their token. They have a plus one, a plus zero, and a minus one. Now, why would you want to use that minus one march? Well, you only have three of them, and sometimes you have to play that minus one. So they would add that modifier. If the defender played a defense token, this is where that bonus comes into play. Then they can call on support from adjacent regions. So if any adjacent region has a support order down, they can choose to add their strength of the armies in that region to the attacker or the defender. It doesn't matter what player it is. And that would be the initial strength. A lot of times it's something like 3 to 2 or 4 to 4. But there is one more factor that determines the battle, and that is the house cards. Each family has a set of seven house cards representing the characters in the story. Each player has the same set of numbers. The numbers are 00111234. And each player gets to select one of those cards, and players will both select them at the same time, and then flip them, and add those to their score to help determine the battle. In addition to just the numbers that add to the strength, each card has some sort of special ability. And the special abilities are different from player to player. So because of that, it's important that the cards are open information. Before you select your card, generally players will want to trade cards to see what the other player has available to play before each player selects their card. Now the obvious question is, why wouldn't you just play your four card every single time? Well, because, of course, once you play one of the cards, say, for example, your four card, you may no longer play that card. It gets placed in a discard pile, and you do not get it back until you have played all of your cards. And since typically you'll only do between you know three and ten battles in an average game, you might not ever see that four card again. So a lot of times the situation is, well, I know he can beat me if he plays his four, but is he going to use his four now? And that's part of the fun of this game. So after both players have previewed and then they select, 
and then they flip to reveal their house cards, you have the total of the value of the units, the order token, the supporting armies, and the card, and whoever has the highest number wins. Now, most of the time here, this is a little bit unusual, but most of the time after a battle, no pieces really die. In order for pieces to die, the house cards have to have a special ability called a sword. If whoever won the battle has a sword icon, then the loser has to remove a number of pieces equal to the number of swords, unless the defender has towers. One of the special abilities is a tower, and towers nullify swords. So not all of the cards have swords or towers, but they are on about half of the cards. And the moral of the story is if you think that you're going to win a battle, it's good to play the swords to try to kill some of the opponent's units. If you know you're going to lose a battle, play the towers. But most of the loser's units will not die. So where do they go? Well, they have to retreat. And so whoever loses the battle has to retreat out of that area, and they can retreat to a completely empty or a friendly area, an area containing their units. You are allowed to use boat movement in order to retreat. In the rare case that you have nowhere to retreat to that's empty or friendly, those units would immediately die. And then they flip those units who just lost the battle over on their side, and the term for that is routing. And that means that they effectively have a strength of zero, they can't move, if they're forced to retreat, they die, and they can't be chosen as casualties. And so they'll stay routed until the beginning of the next turn, where you can stand them back up. So basically, they're tired. So that's how you kill people and steal their land. Next, I would like to direct your attention to three tracks on the board, numbered 1 through 6, with an icon of each of the houses in a specified order. These are the influence tracks, and they're an important part of the game. The Influence Tracks. Skippy, Skippy, this still sounds like garbage. Uh, get this fixed by the next segue. Yes, sir. Sorry, sir. Just, just fix it. <sighs> so at the start of the game, your house has a specified position on these three tracks, and each of these tracks gives special abilities. Let's talk about them. The Iron Throne. Thematically, this represents the family that has the best claim to the throne. Mechanically, this track determines the turn order. We use the turn order when we resolve the order discs, and importantly, the raids and the marches. It's nice to be first in the turn order because you can claim that empty territory first, or you can attack the opponent before they get a chance to attack you back. Also, whoever's in the number one place on each of these three tracks gets a special bonus item! The bonus item for the Iron Throne track is, guess what? The Iron Throne. What is the Iron Throne good for? Well, you get to decide on any ties in the game who wins those ties, which can be a very important and powerful ability. Well, that's not exactly true. You get to decide on any ties except ties in combat, because that is the purpose of the fiefdoms track. Thematically, this represents the support from your sworn liege lords, and that assists you in your combat. Whoever is higher up on this track will win battles in the case of a tie, and ties are fairly common in this game, and knowing you have that tiebreaker can be critical because it can allow you to play a lower house card. Whoever's in the number one position gets the Valyrian Steel Blade. 
And when you have the Valyrian Steel Blade, you can use it in one combat each turn to add one to your strength in a combat. And that doesn't seem like much, but in a game where you really can only get your strength so high, when someone has this and they haven't used it yet, they're very hard to defeat. Strategy tip number one, the sword is really good. The third track is called the King's Court track. Thematically, this represents all of the intrigue and the amount of spies and information that your house is getting, which is a very important part of the stories if you've read the books. Mechanically, this track allows you to play better orders. Now, I said there's 15 orders that you get to place. Well, that's not exactly true. Because you'll notice that 10 of the orders are normal, regular orders, two of each symbol. You have two marches, two raids, two defense, and so on. But one of each of them has a star on them, and these are called special orders, and they're a little bit more powerful. The number of these you can play is limited by your position on this track. The top two people can use three of the five of these. Third place can lay two, fourth place can lay one, and if you're fifth or sixth on this track, you don't have any spies, then you can't play any of those, which is a pretty rough limitation. Because this means for sure you can only do two marches, as well as limiting you in other ways. The person on position number one of this track will get what's called the Messenger Raven, which gives you a special ability, which I'll tell you about in a little bit. But next, I need to tell you about some of the important events that happen in the Westeros deck, which contains a lot of the major events that affect the flow of the game. The event cards. Huh, much better, Skippy. Way to go. Thank you, sir. So to go back to the structure of the game, we're going to place our tokens, reveal our tokens, do all of our orders, and then we'll start the second turn. At the start of that turn, and each future turn, we're going to flip up three cards from three different decks. And these decks have major events that happen in the game. Now this may seem very random, but it's not as random as you might think, because each of these decks only has about two or three different things that can occur. Let's talk about each of them. In deck one, you're generally either going to have a supply card, or a muster card, and each of these will happen about 50% of the time. The supply card forces you to check your supply. One other icon that's on the board is barrels, and these barrels are very important because the number of these barrels you have limit the number of armies and size of those armies that you can have on the board. To start with, most of the houses have two barrels, and if you look on the supply track, you'll notice that under the two barrels symbol, you'll see three flags, a three, a two, and a two. And what that means is that that is the most armies that you can have in three different regions. You can have three figures in one area, two in another area, and two in another area. Now, in order to be considered an army, it has to have at least two figures. Areas where you only have one figure aren't affected by supply, so in theory, you could have as many regions as you wanted that just have one token in it. But when you start to build up armies, which are important when you want to take territories, these are limited by that track, and you always need to be aware of that. You may never move pieces so that you're breaking those rules. 
Now the supply event is important because you don't get to adjust that track immediately. You have to wait until that supply card comes up. And so say we get to the middle of the game, the supply card comes up, and I now have five barrels. So I get to move up to the five, and now you'll notice I can have a four, three, three, and two. I can have a region that has four units in it, whereas most of my opponents probably have a limitation of only three in a region. And so that's how supply affects the game. Be aware that groups of boats, if you have, say, two boats in a sea region, that counts, that navy counts as an army. That counts against your supply limit, so be aware of that. The second card that's going to come up about half the time is Muster. And Muster is probably one of the most important event cards in the game, because that allows you to get more troops. The number of troops that you get is dictated by the castles that you have. And so this shows that getting areas with castles are the most important areas in the game for two reasons. One, they determine who wins the game. Once you get to seven, you immediately win. But also, the more castles you have, the more troops that you're going to get. Now, I've been lying a little bit in that technically in the game, these aren't all called castles. I find it easier to simplify and say that all of those castle-looking thingies on the board are castles. But if you'll notice, there are two-story silvery castles and one-story bronzy castles. The two-story castles are called strongholds, and they produce more troops. When this card comes up, all the players at the same time, well, technically you can do it in turn order, but a lot of times most of the players will do it simultaneously. If you would like to see what your opponent does first, you may request that it be done in turn order. But you get troops based on the castles that you have on the board in those specific areas. So the smaller castles can get one point of units. The larger strongholds can get two points of units. The basic footmen that have a strength of one cost what's called one mustering point. The knights cost two mustering points. The boats cost one mustering point. The special unit called the siege engines, which we haven't talked about yet, also take two points of mustering. Another option that you have is to upgrade. If I had a footman in an area with a castle, I could use my mustering point to upgrade the footman to a knight. Similarly, I could upgrade it to a siege engine. So all the players will have maybe three or four castles. And so for each of those, they'll get either one or two units. And they'll all place those on the board. So that's how players sort of load up for combat is when that mustering occurs. Now, now remember how we just talked about that supply? You have to stay within that supply limit when you're mustering those troops. So you cannot add troops if you're going to go over that because they will immediately be killed. This is the advantage of upgrading to sort of those larger units. You get more strength with less supplies. The downside being that those units are a little more vulnerable as a sword icon can kill a knight just as well as it can kill a footman. So that's how you, you refill your armies. One of the real tricky parts about this game is you never really know when all the players are going to get more armies, and so you just sort of have to play sort of guessing uh, when that next reload is going to occur. So that was deck one. Generally, you're either going to supply or muster. Deck two is going to allow you either to get more power or we're going to have a massive bid-off on those three influence tracks. The Game of Thrones card will occur about half the time, and all that does is allow you to count the number of regions that you have with crowns, and you get a power token for each of those regions. So that shows how it's good to take those areas as well. The other half of the time, we will get the card that has us use those tokens on bidding. And so if you don't like that, those initial positions, well, you'll be glad when that Clash of Kings card comes up. 
How this works is we have a secret simultaneous bid one at a time on the three different tracks. This starts with players announcing how much power they have so everyone knows the amount that players could use. They then say, all right, we're going to bid on the Iron Throne. We all hide all of our power. We put the amount we want to bid in our hand. We put our hand in the middle. When all players' hands are in the middle, we reveal how much power from zero to all we have we have bid. Then we rearrange the icons based on which family bid the most. Here's where the Iron Throne becomes very valuable. Any ties in this situation get to be decided by the person with the Iron Throne. Even if there's something like a three-way tie, say three players all bid two, you get to decide who gets first, second, and third. And if you're one of those players, you would probably pick first. If a new player gets first place, they would immediately get the Iron Throne and immediately get that ability to decide ties after that first bid is resolved. Then you bid on the sword track and maybe someone new will get the sword and then you bid on the raven track. And those will stay in play until we have another round where another Clash of Kings card comes out. Deck three is going to have either a wildling attack or some sort of an order placement restriction. About a third of the time you're going to have the wildlings attack. Who are the wildlings? Well, shame on you for not having read the books. The wildlings are these barbaric type people that live north of Westeros, and occasionally they decide to come down and raid and attack this wall that protects all of the civilized people from these barbarians. And it is up to you, good nobles, to support their efforts in defending the continent of Westeros. So on some of these event cards is a little mammoth head symbol, because of course the barbarians ride on mammoths, what else would they ride on? And when one of those mammoth heads shows up, you increase the threat track. The threat track goes 0, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. And when the wildlings finally do attack, then that's the amount of strength that you have to contribute to fight them off. How that works is, say the threat track got to 6, we had a wildling attack card flip up. And all the players, again, just like we did for bidding on the tracks, they'd announce how much they have, and they would put the tokens secretly in their hand. They would choose how many they want. Everybody would stick their fist in and reveal. We have to match the threat level of the wildlings. If we win, there's rejoicing. Hooray! And whoever bid the most will get some sort of a reward. We will flip up a card and that will tell us what the generous house will receive as their reward. And it's all sorts of things from more armies to jumping on tracks to all sorts of good things. If we lose, boo. Well, then we shall all be punished. There'll be some sort of punishment as dictated by the card that will flip up after we've decided that we've lost. And there will be an extra punishment for the person that contributed the least. What if there's a tie? Guess what? The Iron Throne holder gets to execute their power to decide ties for the person who gets the reward or the punishment before we actually get to flip up the card and determine what that reward or punishment is. So that's only uh, just a few cards in that deck three. Most of the time, there will be events that will place some sort of restriction on the orders that can be placed by the players. For example, there's ones that say no defense orders may be played or no support orders may be played. And those will occur most of the time in that deck three. Now, there are a couple cards in each of those three decks that allow the choice 
of which of those things occur by the person who holds one of the three different tokens, the throne, the sword, or the raven. We'll get to decide you know, whether we bid or get power or whether we supply or muster or what kind of restrictions are there on the turn. So that's another bonus for holding those special tokens. And there are a couple cards in there that say nothing happened, which is always a bummer when you're hoping for more troops. But that's how those event cards work. Other important rules. I know, I know, we're not done yet. There's a few things that we do have to get to. First thing is those special orders. Most of them just give you a nicer bonus. Remember, the special orders are the ones that you have to be high up on the king's court track to be able to play. The march special is march plus one. Otherwise, you have to march at plus zero or minus one. The defense star gives you plus two instead of plus one. The support star gives you plus one instead of plus zero. And the other two, they added little bonuses to that didn't exist in the first edition. The raids are now able to raid a defense order, whereas raids never were able to touch defense orders before. This star raid can. You still can never raid a march, though. And finally, this is quite a significant change, and one of the most powerful orders in the game, I think, is the star crown allows you to muster in that region only. Now, normally, as we said, you have to wait for that muster, and it can take a long time. This allows you to get one or two more troops on the board. Ideally, you want to play it in an area with a stronghold, so you could build like a knight or a boat and a footman, and so you would get to muster a couple pieces when other people would not. Next, establishing control. Now, normally, in order to control a region, you have to have pieces there. Now, you may want to hold a region because of its barrels or crowns or castles and leave it empty. That is the second function of the power tokens. If you want to still control a region, when you leave it and you don't leave any guys there, you can leave one of your power tokens in that region to show that you still have control of it. You don't get to place orders there, and anybody can just sort of walk in there and take it away from you. But if it's in a protected region, you can probably hold it for a long period of time. But know that you'll never get that power token back. It will be there till the end of the game or until someone takes it. And if you don't have a power token, you cannot do this, which can be very annoying. I know from experience. Next, ports. What do they do? These were added from the first expansion, and they're a critical part of the game. What they allow you to do is to muster into this little port area. And the reason that they are critical is because if an enemy holds that sea area, before in the game when there were no ports, then you were just out of luck. You were never getting out of there. But now, with the addition of the ports, you can muster boats into the port and then march out of the port into the sea to try to take back your sea area. The other thing they can do is thematically trade, which just means that uh, now your boats, that are at least the ones that are in the ports, can get power tokens. Normally boats cannot play the crown symbol, but boats in the port can. Neutral army tokens. In the standard game with six players, there will only be two of these on the board at King's Landing and the Airy. And you'll see a token that says a five and a six on it. And this represents just this neutral army that's sitting there. And in order to take that area, you need to bring that much strength without using a house card. And so you'd have to have that strength in units, plus the march order, plus any support in an adjacent region, but you could not add a house card. 
And if you can do that, then you will take that territory, you'll knock that token off, and you will control that region, and that token will never come back on the board. Next, Siege Engines. Siege Engines, they take two points to muster, so you have to muster them in a stronghold or upgrade from a footman. And what they are good for is knocking over castles, of course, by which I mean castles or strongholds, and they are very good at that. When you attack a region with a castle, the siege engines have a value of 4. But at any other point, siege engines have a value of 0. So they are a very powerful unit and great for taking down castles, but very vulnerable if they get attacked first. Garrison tokens. Each player starts with a garrison at their homeland with a strength of 2. And so that, what that allows you to do, this was another addition to the second edition, which is kind of nice because you have such limited pieces. You can sort of leave your homeland because you always have two there. If you have just the garrison there, you cannot place an order there. But if it does get attacked, you do get to play a house card when defending your garrison. Last thing I'd point out is some of the features on the map. And they did a nice job of really making these clear on the new map. You may not cross the blue lines. Those are, of course, rivers. You have to go to a bridge in order to cross those rivers or to a standard white line. There are a few islands on the map, and in order to expand that, that area to put more troops in, they made sort of a, an outlined white box. And so that's where all the troops for that island would go. So that's it. Those are all the critical rules you need to play the game. Now let's just take a step back and quickly look at the full flow of how the game plays out. The full flow of the game. So on every turn, except for the first one, we're going to flip one card from each of the event card decks, which are going to allow us to get more troops, adjust the supply, get power tokens, bid on the tracks, and possibly have that wildling attack. Then after that, all the players at the same time will put their order disc face down on the board. Once all the players are ready, you'll flip up all the discs on the board. And now, I didn't forget about you, Mr. Raven, now is when you get to use your special ability. After all the order discs are revealed, the player with the Raven has two choices. They can look at the board and decide to take one of their discs that they have not used and switch it after seeing what everyone has done. A lot of times that may not be useful. So another change they made is they gave the person with the Raven a second option and that is to peek at the top card of the Wildling deck. That is to see the consequences or the reward for what happens if we win or lose the Wildling battle. And that can be some beneficial knowledge. Then the player has the ability to either put that back on top, or the player can bury it on the bottom of the deck, which is a fun little ability. So then after the Raven is done either swapping or scouting that top card, then what you do is you resolve the orders. And we do this basically in three steps. We'll start with the raids, and we do them one at a time. Normally there's not a lot of raids on the board, but there may be a couple. You go through those one at a time in turn order. So the player who's first, Baratheon, might do one raid, and then you go to the next player, and so on down the Iron Throne track. You do the same thing with marches. You do the marches one at a time. 
and it can be a real strategic decision deciding which of your March orders to execute first. As you might be chaining an order together, you may need to get to a spot first, you may want to wait to see where someone else goes before you go, and so doing those one at a time provides for some interesting decisions. And as the players execute these different orders, including both the raids and the marches, as soon as a player executes one of them, they take that token off of the board, and that lets people know as they're trying to figure out what to do, which marches have been done and which have not. Then finally, we resolve those consolidate power orders. Now, if someone was attacked and there was a crown symbol on there and they lost, then they would lose those. In fact, any order placed by the defender will get pulled off if that person loses the battle, which again shows the importance of turn order. If you march an opponent's march and beat them, you're going to take away their ability to march. But after all the dust clears, the support and defense orders are worthless, but those power tokens are now going to collect if they survived all of the carnage. Now, the exception to that would be the low mustering crown token order, and multiple players have those. You could do those in turn order. Players can get a couple more troops there. And that would be the end of the round. So then you'd start with the three cards again. You'd put your discs down, flip them up, and resolve them. And you would keep playing turns until someone gets seven castles, including, of course, strongholds. And this is the most common way that the game ends. Usually, you know, somewhere between four and seven turns. The game does not typically go for the full ten turns. If it does, which I've never seen happen, but if it were to get to that point, then the person with the most castles would win the game. Part three, the hamster. How to win the game. So it's time for some basic advice on how to do well at this game, Game of Thrones. Now I spoke of earlier that this really is not my forte. It's not sort of my number one genre of game. And so in playing this game over the last several years, especially when I first started playing it, I really took a beating because I just didn't know how to approach it. I hadn't played sort of its really its parent game, Diplomacy, or really any a lot of warish games that gave me uh, some tools to have some strategy to play this game. So I think I've gotten better. I've, I've won uh, this game a handful of times, and hopefully if you're like me and you're unfamiliar with games of this style, I can give you a little bit of advice on how to play it well and not get in some of those painful situations where you're reduced to just a couple of units, which I've had the misfortune of doing, and you may still end up in that situation. So here's the number one thing, is that this game is all about support. There's only so many units you can build up. You're so limited by the number of units. And there's no random dice to help you win battles, and everyone tops out at four on cards. So the only way that you really win, you can guarantee yourself wins, is through support and, and having that help. And in order to have support, you have to stay close. So what I've learned is that really a good way to play this game is you have you start at your little home base and you don't want to just go marching here and there and everywhere what you want to do is you sort of want to just kind of grow like a blob like imagine a puddle uh, on the floor that's dripping and it's growing and growing and spreading and increasing its territory that's what you want to do be a growing puddle don't be scattered drops all over the map don't 
separate your forces too much because of that adjacency of support. Don't go leaping too far away. Stay in your sort of ball of power and try to grow it. Not only do you have the threat of playing a support order that touches multiple regions, but you also can sit there with the threat of an immediate counterattack if one person were to try to enter your ball of power. And if someone does come into your ball of power, you look at them in the eye and say, you have crossed into my ball of power. Beware. And watch them tremble. Now, initially, you get thrown into this and you have these all these order tokens and you don't know what to do. In order to simplify it, think about your marches first. Your marches are the most important. You may have two, only two, or three, and you know, you're probably going to use all of them. And think about, you know, where do I need to move? Where do I want to move? Do I want to attack? Do I want to consolidate my forces? What am I doing here? And then worry about the rest of that junk later. Be very careful about knowing where you stand in the turn order. That's going to affect your plans. You, you need to guess what your opponent is going to do, especially if you're a little later in the turn order. Know if someone's going to jump in there. Or if you're earlier in the turn order, know that you can attack them in a particular spot before they can reinforce that area. Be aware of the turn order. Play the marches first, think about the turn order, and think about what your opponents are going to do. Now, before you lay that march, and even after you flip it over, but before you execute it, you really need to think about your marches. Before you march into that territory to start a battle, do the math. Add it all up. You can see the support. You know what cards your opponent has. You can ask them for it. You can figure out, do I have a chance of winning? And what am I going to have to invest in order to win that battle? And am I willing to do that? You need to do all that thinking in advance. Don't jump in there and then say, I'm going to attack you. And then look at it and say, oh, that was not smart. I can't win. Don't forget about that tiebreaker. The tiebreaker, the sword track. If you have the tiebreaker, if, you have, if your opponent that you're attacking has the tiebreaker, is critical. Next, don't forget, everybody gets three marches. Once you go in there and you take a territory, someone can attack you back and take it back. Either the player you just took it from, or maybe a third player who sees that you're weak now. You've burned your best card, and they have stronger forces down there that they can just take that area that you just took. Remember that you can be counterattacked. The other thing about marching is, can't forget about supply. No, you probably will have a top limit of three. You have a very strong limit on how many groups you can have. And the supply can limit your ability to muster. If you hold a lot of troops in the area where you muster, you may not be able to muster. If all your castle areas are filled with troops, you may not be able to put any more things on the board. So sometimes it's good to sort of spread things out a little bit. The next thing I want to talk about is the sea. The sea is very important. Use and recognize the things that you can do with your boats. Don't forget that you can support your battles with the sea. Don't allow one person to get too much domination there with too many sea areas or they'll be able to move so far around the continent it will give them a lot of power. The other thing about the sea is it's very hard to get a, a large advantage in the sea because it's just boats. They can't be supported by land. And so because of that, once you lose, it's sort of hard to take back and vice versa. So be careful about those naval battles. You don't want to give up too much out in the sea. Next, power. Don't forget about power. Generating power is very important because if you end up at the bottom of all three tracks, you're going to be in a really rough spot. So don't forget to use that crown action to get crown tokens. And then when the bids do come up, be smart about it. 
Don't try to win everything. Think about what would be best for you to win. Try to get high at least one on those tracks. Try to get at least one of those tokens. More importantly, think about who you have to beat and be sure to beat that person. So I'm saying if you're adjacent to Baratheon, you want to be sure to beat Baratheon and whatever that they're trying to get. And don't forget, the wildlings are coming. So that bid could come up, and then the wildling could come up right away. So don't forget to save at least one, just in case for that situation. And not to mention, also, holding territory requires power tokens. And if you burn all of your tokens and you don't have any, that's going to reduce an option that you just won't have. The last thing I will warn you about is pay attention to your opponents. This game can end quickly if people are not keeping track of that leader. Five is certainly a danger zone. You're playing to seven. When someone gets to five, they can win on the next turn. And if players aren't close enough to that person who has five, you could be in big trouble. So you have to pay attention to who's in the lead. And not only that, you have to try to kind of stay close to them so that if they start to get six, you can sort of take one back and take them back a peg. This is a game where you may need to set up alliances between players in order to prevent that one player from reaching that magic number of seven. But you have to pay attention to it. This is one of the best additions. They actually added that score track. In the early game, players just wouldn't say that they had six castles and then bang, all of a sudden they won. So having that score track is very important and, and recognizing even four, even when someone's at four, they, they're starting to be a threat. I'm asking you to pay attention to that track because once someone hits seven, game's over. But that's all the advice I have for you. I hope that was useful, and I wish you the best of luck in your quest to conquer Westeros. Part 4. Footnotes. So that's that. That is Game of Thrones. I hope you enjoyed that. A couple more things to point out. One thing that was included in this new edition is these cards called Tides of Battle cards. What do the Tides of Battle cards do? Nothing. Don't take them out of the bag. Well, at least that's my suggestion. What you're supposed to do with the Tides of Battle cards is whenever you have a battle, each player gets a Tide of Battle card, which has a number on it, 0 to 3, and after they have done everything, they pick a card and they flip it over and they add that to their total. Hooray! Why would you ever want to do that? I, I don't... <laughs> I don't understand. In a game where maybe there was, a, you know, a lot of battles and the randomness might even out a little bit, I think that might not be such a problem. In Game of Thrones, you might only fight three or four fights. And to have those fights be determined by the flip of a card rather than the decisions that you've made throughout the game, there, there's so many decisions that you have to make, it sort of takes away from experience in my opinion if you want the game to be i guess a little more forgiving i guess i could see how that could be a good thing because it might be able to help someone who's made some poor choices but overall i really don't recommend using these tides of battle cards that being said i haven't used them uh, but i can't see how they would improve the game if you play with less than six players, you put some uh, neutral markers, you put more neutral markers on the board. Like with five, you basically cover Dorne. All the southern area gets covered with these neutral markers. And it works out okay. I actually played a five-player game, uh, but just 
anecdotally, I was Tyrell and sort of took that area and got some castles there, and Baratheon fought me sort of, but I was able to win the game. So it, it kind of works, but everybody sort of has to push south. If you have the original game that had the five-player board on that game, I, I think that that five-player board would probably still be preferable. But overall, if you're, if you're trying to run this game, I would really just, as I said before, try to run it with six. It, it really was meant to play with six. Now, I used to go through and hit every little nitty-gritty detail rule that I missed in the meet, and you know what? I think I've decided that I don't really want to do that anymore. The odds that it will be useful to you versus whether or not it's entertaining to listen to all those nitpicky rules, you know, I just think it's in the best interest of the show to just move past those things and if you come up with a particular situation you know that's what the rule book is for digging into the rule book you know this show is really intended to give you a basic understanding and a starting point as well as a, a framework for teaching as far as hitting every nitty little gritty rule I don't think that's maybe in the best interest of the show as, you know, you're not going to reference the audio podcast. You're going to reference the rule book. Let me know at the Guild if you think that that's a good decision, but I'm pretty sure that's the direction I'm going to go. I'm going to skip these little nitty-gritty rules. You know, there's a couple more things about ports, the tiebreaker at the end of the game, you know, these little sorts of things. I think I'm just going to stop putting at the end of the show unless there are commonly forgotten yet important rules. Those I will be sure to include. And finally, I'd like to talk just a little bit and give my brief review and thoughts about the Game of Thrones books, as they're something that I really love and would just not mind talking about for a few minutes here. And I am sensitive to the fact that a lot of you may not have read the books and may be interested in reading them, so I promise you in this discussion not to spoil anything or try to take anything away from your experience, try to talk a little bit generically about it so as not to ruin any of this great story for you. First of all, I would really like to just try to convince you, if you have not read the series of Game of Thrones or picked up any of George R.R. R. Martin's books, I would really urge you to do so. Fantasy has always been my preferred genre of choice. I've just always loved sort of that escapism, I guess, and that story of going to a new land and, and seeing new people. And this stemmed from, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons and wanting to sort of continue those adventures that we had in, in playing those role-playing games and read about stories that were about sort of the experiences that we were having in playing those games. And I burned through a lot of the, the books I think traditionally a lot of role players read, you know, including the Dragonlance Chronicles by Weiss and Hickman and R.A. Salvatore with Driz, Driz something. It's uh, It has two Zs and it's hard to pronounce. And you know what? <laughs> the books were, were entertaining and, and I loved them when I was, you know, a teenager. But I, you know, overall... The, I would never consider them sort of literature, I guess, if if I'm going to be a snob. And just continuing to seek out, you know, fantasy and, and that experience and that escapism and that adventure. Kept looking for it. And I actually found, you know, a list of, you know, the top 100 fantasy books. And I, I saw at the top of this list, I think this was, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, probably 2000. Uh, when I discovered this list and I saw this series, A Song of Ice and Fire, that I had never heard of, uh, that was like in the top 10 of the best fantasy books, and I had never heard of A Song of Ice and Fire. And so I went and I checked out the first book, Game of Thrones, 
just let me tell you, I mean, I'm not a, a regular reader, someone who reads every night. You know, one thing for me is to read consistently. I'll, I'll pick up a book and then, you know, I'll read it again in a week. But this is one of the few books that I could not stop reading. And it, it really taught me a lot about, you know, what good writing could be and what good writing can do. Being a person who teaches writing to elementary school kids, you know, it's something actually about that same time, about 10 years ago, I was really interested in and trying to figure out about what makes good writing and how do authors create a story. And I, I found this the Game of Thrones, the Song of Ice and Fire series, to be really illuminating in trying to figure out, you know, what makes a good story. And to me, George R. R. Martin created really a magical experience for me, you know, especially with those first few books. And what was it about Game of Thrones that created this magical experience? Well, you know, it's sort of that trifecta that, that I teach to my kids. What are the three things that, that make a story? Characters setting, and plot. And Martin hit it on all three, three for three. That is for sure. I, I think particularly with characters is the thing that struck me about Martin's writing. I really feel like even when I would read one chapter and they would be each focused on a particular character and just in the, the actions and the words and the thoughts of that character, I was just amazed at how Martin could give me a sense of that person's personality just through 20 pages of writing. For me, no author has ever been able to capture a fictional person in 20 pages of text like George R. R. Martin has. And that, that would be the number one thing. I mean, it's almost like, you know, you get to know these people and, and they're your friends. You, you read about them. It's, it's like, I know who they are. I can predict what they're going to do. I I have a sense that they actually are real people. And, you know, for me, that's that's the number one magical thing that George R. R. Martin did with his books. The setting of Westeros is just amazing. You know, to have, you know, a cast of thousands with each living in, you know, different landscapes and each having their own culture. And that was one thing that I really appreciated about this book. And I find so lacking in many other fantasy books is that I really felt an actual sense of real culture and not just one culture when you would move from one region to another you would get from the dialogue and from the things that they were talking about and the events and the way that these people lived you got a real sense of culture and a real sense of place in this world that he has developed and that third cornerstone of plot I couldn't stop reading. I mean, I remember just turning page after page and being unable to do other things and, and thinking about just you know reading that next chapter and finding out what was going to happen next. These books just keep you on the edge of your seat. Well, at least until the end of the third book. Um, and I, you know, I think this is a pretty common complaint and something I think you should be aware of if you're about to undertake reading this gigantic 5,000 so far page series is that after book three, everything sort of came to a halt. And, uh, you know, my opinion is that the problem is, was that maybe he just tried to take on too much. From book one, the setting that he chose had thousands of characters and, and a multitude of settings. But in book one, he really focused on 
two or three locations. And, and that was it. That was the heart of the story. And that sort of grew in the second book to maybe three or four locations. And then in the third book, it sort of became five or six different locations that all these different things were sort of happening. And then I think he sort of hit the wall because after book three, there was this gap. I think the story got too big. And it was always kind of a problem in the series. There's always from book one, at least one or two characters that were sort of on their own independent storyline that weren't interacting with the rest of the the main story that was going throughout the book. And that sort of grew into the second book. And for sure, by the third book, there were probably three or four characters that were not doing anything that was impacting sort of the major drive through the book. And then in this fourth, fifth book combination that ended up becoming... There were so many strands. He introduced, you know, to begin with, with book one, we had we had 10 characters or so. And then by book four and five, he introduced, he probably doubled that. So now there were 20 characters with which we were following as major storyline characters. And, and I think it just kind of gets too hard to care at that point. And it got unfocused. And I think that that was telling from the seven-year gap between book three and book four. Before we saw the release of that fourth book, each of the other books took about a year or two, and suddenly there was just this long, drawn-out nothingness from that series for seven long years. Book four and book five are actually just one book. Book four came out in 2007, and book five came out in 2011, because book four grew to like 1,500 pages, because he was trying to do all of this. He was trying to tell this whole story, and it just seemed to be too much. It, it's really a bit tragic, actually, because you know when I first found the series, I, I buzzed through the first three books in you know, just about a year, and then it was... When's book four coming out? When's book four coming out? And it was checking the web page, you know, every week, every month. You know, I, I think it will be done soon. I think it will be done soon, 2002. I think it will be done soon, 2004. I think it will be done soon, 2006. And then the book came out. And in opening up that book, I discovered that that book was not the book I had been waiting and hoping and longing to read. Because finally, after this long wait, I have this book in my hands and I start reading and within, you know, a matter of the first hundred pages, I, I realize something terrible. I could put the book down. I could put the book down. It was still good. I still enjoyed it. I still got through it and it was pleasant, but it was not the first three books. It just had lost the magic. And then I, I thought, you know, because a lot of my characters were not in that first part in 2007. So then I thought, you know, maybe the next book, maybe the next book. And so I've waited and the, the book five had just come out now in 2011 and I'm almost all the way through it. But you know what? That wasn't the book I was looking for either. It had just gotten too big and there were too many chapters where I would read it and I would say, well, that was pretty good, but nothing really happened and nothing in that chapter really affected the main storyline, but it was generally entertaining. 
And that was something that started, I blame Brienne, uh, which may not actually be fair. There's a character named Brienne, and all she seems to do is wander through the woods. Uh, but, you know, this was this was starting to happen even early on in the book with a few other characters that they would just do nothing. But with 80% of the of the chapters was just riveting. Uh, but now the, the story seems to have gotten to a point where it's just gotten too big and a little bit too unfocused. And I hope and my prayer is that he finds a way to find the focus. I give a few pieces of advice when I teach my third graders writing. And the number one thing that I always have to tell them is do more with less. Yes, George Martin, you've created this wonderful world of not only this continent of Westeros, but the lands across the sea, and there are so many beautiful settings, and you have 1,000 wonderful characters, but we need you to focus and find the story and make us care about a handful of those characters because we can't care about everybody. We can't care about everything. You have to show us where the story is. And, and it kind of makes me sad. So I'm hoping that in these last few books, he refines that magic and he refines that focus to finish this saga the way that it was meant to be finished. So that was my long, drawn-out musing uh, about Game of Thrones. I hope if you haven't read it, I hope I've convinced you, you for sure should read the first three books. And if you want to stop after book three, you may be well within your rights to do that until it's been proven that, you know, the the series is going to really continue from there. But I, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. If you have any love of fantasy, even if you don't, you know, I asked my wife to read it and she loved the first three books as well. And and feels the same way about the future books. I think it's it's a pretty common sentiment about people that enjoy the writing, but they just feel like the plot has lost its place. Nevertheless, even incomplete as it may be, I think that you would really be missing something if you did not read the first three books of A Game of Thrones, which is what the series should be called, because A Song of Ice and Fire is... Not a very good title. Uh, I think that could be seen by the title of this game is called A Game of Thrones and not A Song of Ice and Fire because that's really just not a good name. I've read 5,000 pages and I still don't know what The Song of Ice and Fire is. Maybe we'll find out in book six. I don't know. What about the TV show? Can I just watch the TV show? No. No. The TV show is fine. But if you just watch a TV show, you are going to be missing out on what the world of Westeros is and the, the richness of those characters. I was talking about the building of the characters and, and how that's the number one thing that George Martin does. You can't build a character in a 45-minute TV show the way that you can do it in a book. So it's entertaining to watch if you've read the book, but read the book first don't go get the miniseries. I just think it would come across as very disjointed as you're just missing so much. And the whole thing comes across as a little bit cheesy, whereas the books were never cheesy. If you want an easier way to experience it, and maybe even a better way, here's what you do. Get the audiobook read by Roy Detrice. Roy Detrice 
is wonderful. I love audiobooks. I think audiobooks are one of the best ways to really experience a book, it, especially if you have a, a very competent and skilled reader. And Roy Detrice is amazing because, as I said, there's a cast of a thousand in this book. And every time Roy Detrice speaks uh, in dialogue, you know which character that is, and that's how skilled he is. It, he really puts you in that world. It's incredible. He, he deserves a ton of credit for what he did there with books one, two, three, and 5. And it's very sad to me that for some reason Roy Detrice did not do the audiobook of book 4. But everyone, go get the audiobooks of Game of Thrones, Clash of Kings, and Storm of Swords. Even if you've read the book, I, I think I listen to them, you know, once every couple of years. I, I just enjoy them so much. It's a, a wonderful experience, maybe one of the best experiences you can have reading a book or listening to a story. So, you know, despite what sort of happened to the series, I am tremendously grateful for the experiences and being fortunate enough to read these stories, to be able to step into that world and remembering the first time I read each of those books. Without a doubt, reading that first book is the best experience I've had reading a book in my entire life. So there you go. I can give you no stronger recommendation than that. Well, so that was, that was a lot of fun. It was great to talk about a story and a game that I'm really passionate about. I want to thank Fantasy Flight Games for sending me this second edition of their game and for the work and the, and the passion that they put into reimagining it and making it the best game that it can be. I really had a lot of fun. It was great to be back. And I look forward to returning in January with a description of another great game. I might even slot in uh, a couple special episodes in there, so stay tuned. And be sure, if you haven't yet, check out the new website at howtoplaypodcast.com. That's going to do it for me. I hope you all have a great holiday season, a great winter. Thanks so much for tuning in. Listen all the way to the bitter end. I really appreciate your support and hearing from you there at the Guild. But i, I got to get going now because uh, the How to Play holiday party is starting. And, you know, they've been my producer and, and my my best boy and my grip. Uh, they're all waiting for me there in the penthouse of the How to Play Studios. So I got to go grab a, a mug of eggnog and enjoy some holiday cheer. So happy holidays. Merry Christmas to all of you. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play podcast. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, for all the How to Play resources, to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the Justice League of board game podcasts, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.